Let me pray for us and then we'll jump into 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 through 21. God, again, you were gracious and kind to us as a church. Though this is just a building, God, uh, you spared damage happening to this place. Um, I'm grateful for that. I'm also grateful for all the men and women that came yesterday as a volunteer to cut and move trees and branches and make this place look pretty for us this morning. God, I'm so grateful for the people of this church um, and what they mean to me, and what they how they give their time, their resources, their talents. Um, God, and I pray again for that for us this week at GBS, that you use this expression of your church, your bride, to reach lost people. So lead us this morning, guide us. As always, God, we pray that none of us would come in the same and leave the same, but by the reading and the washing of Your Word on our minds and hearts, that we be transformed, become more and more like Your Son, Jesus. We pray all this in His mighty and famous name. Amen. As you can tell, we're at the very last part of First Timothy, the letter that was written to Timothy, Paul's young protege in the faith, a church uh, pastor to a church in Ephesus. I don't know about you, but these last six months, that's how long we've been in this letter for, uh, have been enriching to my own life and soul. Uh, studying it, preaching it, preparing it. Uh, I pray for us, and I've been praying that God would use this letter in particular, not just, um, not, not just to study, but it would change us, change the way we think about the church, and why God has given us the church, and the reason that we are to be the church, and how we are to function as a church. And that all those things would stir our affections and our hearts to ask the question, are, are we doing church the way God established in His Word? And that's the way I want to do church. Is God has a rule and a reign for how the church is to operate and to look. And as you know, this, is, this whole book has been sent around this one phrase, to fight the good fight. It starts that way. We looked at it last week. It ends that way. Are we, would we say as a church, we are fighting the good fight of the faith, both individually and collectively as the body? Are we fighting the good fight of the faith? Well, as we come to this last portion of the text, it seems out of whack. Uh, if you were with us last week, he ends uh, verse 16 this way, to him be the honor and eternal dominion forever. Amen. Is this as Paul was saying to Timothy, the letter's over, amen. And then I, I don't know if he went back and did some proofreading to make sure his letter was correct, but it's like he has two more things to say. It's the PS and the PPS of the letter. Have you ever written a letter and you get done with the letter and you put your signature at the end and you think, oh wait, uh, there's something I need to say that I forgot to say in the letter. I better say it at the end. That's the PS part. Well, he does that twice. In this letter, and these two things, he talks about the investment that we have and the investment we are to make. He starts with the investment we, the church, we, the believer, are to make. If you were with us a couple weeks ago, he had already addressed the desire to be rich. Remember that. He said, don't have the desire, don't set your heart on being rich. And I wonder if he was going back through the letter and read it and thought, wait, wait, now I've got to address those that are rich. He was addressing the poor people in the congregation 
But then he addresses the rich folk in the congregation. And this is what is true for each of us. We are all rich in this present world. If you are an American, you live here in America, you are rich. By far, compared to the rest of the world. So every one of us in this room this morning, this text applies to. I don't care what your bank account says. In the economy of the world, we are wealthy men and women. And so Paul is addressing us to say, what do we do with how God has richly blessed us? So the title of the sermon, the first point of the sermon, is this, the wise investment. We all want to make wise investments, do we not? Like, I have money, and I'm going to take my money that God has given to me, and I'm going to invest it in other places to make more money, so one day I can hopefully retire. Everyone else want to retire, you just want to work till you die. I I don't want to do that. Not because I'm lazy, I I just want a vacation for a while. I look at how my grandma that's 93 years old has lived the last 30 years. And I'm like, that ain't a bad life, to be honest. But she made a wise investment with her money. And so God is going to say to us through Paul how we are to invest what He has given to us. He says this first in verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. So two things he comes at. If we're going to be wise investors, it doesn't start with where we invest our money, but it starts with where we invest our heart. He says this, two things. Don't be haughty. That word haughty means don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. What Paul is saying to Timothy, what Paul is saying to us through this, uh, verse through this one word is we, we are no better than anyone else. It's only by God's grace that we were born in America. It's not because He loves us more and loves Africa less. It's God's grace and mercy on us that we were born here. We could have been born anywhere else in the world. And so He's saying to us right out the bat, don't think about yourself and don't be haughty because it's not about you and where you were born and how you were born. It's about God and where God decided in His sovereignty to allow you to be born and how you were to be born. God does not think more highly of America than He does any other country in the world. I'd say it this way. I, my great fear is that God has removed His favor from us because we've become haughty. Like at one point, the American church was growing faster than any other church in the world. Do you know when that was? The Great Depression. We didn't have anything to be haughty about then, did we? And then we regained our resources. We regained our wealth. And we continue to regain our wealth. Even in 2008, when we had a minor blip on the radar, we recovered from that very fast. Did we not? Now, our investments may not have recovered fast, but I don't know of very many people that went homeless and hungry 
during 2008 and 2009 the same way they did in the Great Depression. And so we began to be self-will and let our self-will gain us back to where we are today. And my great fear is that God has removed His blessing and favor on us, the American church, because we've been haughty. You know where the church is growing faster than anywhere else in the world? China and India. Two of the poorest countries, and it's beginning to spread into Africa. Three of the poorest continents in the world. Africa and Asia. Because those people are desperate for God. See, rich people don't have to be so desperate, do we? If we don't wake up wondering where our next meal is coming from, the way really the rest of the world does. So he charges them, do not be haughty. Don't be arrogant with what all that God has given to us. And then he says the next one is this. Not being haughty, he comes, James, you can turn with me to James chapter 2. That's page 1011 in your pew Bible. This is what James says about being haughty to the church. James says this, My brothers and sisters, the church, show no partiality as you hold in the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man is wearing a gold ring and fine clothing and, and wears fine clothing comes into your assembly or comes into the church, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, and if you pay more attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, sit here in this good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my feet, have you not then made distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And then he gives this plea. Listen, my brothers and sisters. My dearly beloved brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs in the kingdom which He has promised those who He has loved? We are to show no favoritism. I may step on toes when I say this, and I don't mean to exactly. My great fear for us here at Palace Chapel is this. I don't want to just be a church of rich white people. When we look around, we're mostly rich white people. Have we been haughty? Were we welcome? people into our assembly? Would we welcome those who don't look like us, act like us, talk like us, matter of fact, worship like us? See, my great fear is if we become haughty, God's favor and blessing will be removed from us. You see, the kingdom of God will not be a bunch of rich white people. We'll be the minority. The majority will be colored people of all races races with very little money. And God will make no distinction between us and them, nor shall we. Have we made a distinction? Maybe not externally. I would ask, have you made a distinction 
in your heart. The next thing that Paul says to young Timothy is not to be haughty, but he also then says this, to not set our hope in our stuff. He says, nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of the riches. How many of us have put our hopes in the wrong thing? I wonder for us, if God were to remove this stuff from our lives, where our attention would be focused? Would it be focused on what we lost? Or would our focus be on the One who gave it to us? Like when God removes things from our life and it becomes painful, you know where your heart is where you spend the most amount of your time thinking about. Are you thinking about what was taken from you? Or are you spending most of your time on the One who took it from you? Here's what's true about this statement in this Bible. All that we have has been given to us by God. Every dime that you have, God is the one that uniquely gave it to you. And now you may say, well, man, I work for it. Okay. I went to school and got my education for it. Okay. I got up and put my pants on and put my shirt on and got my car and drove to work and worked hard for it. Okay. Then I'd beg the question to you. Who allowed you to wake up and have a breath of fresh air in the morning to allow you to get up, put your pants and shoes on, get in your car, not get in a wreck, and go to your job to make money? Not you. It's the one who has all the riches and by His goodness and sovereignty blesses all of us. He says to us, do not put our hope in our riches. And then He says, but be reminded of who is the one our hope is in, but on God. Is your hope in God or your paycheck? Is your hope on God or your stuff? I've I, I got to ask myself that question every day. I'm in a season right now of asking God, God, I want to give my attention to Powell's Chapel. I want to give all that I have to this place. But I'm asking myself, God, in order to do that, I've got to be willing to walk away from a lot of money doing what I like to do in counseling. Like, I'm asking myself, and what God keeps bringing me back to is, are you putting your hope in a paycheck? Are you putting your hope into what I've called you? Because I'll provide for you, just will you trust me to provide for you? And I'm too gun-shy at the moment to walk away from men of valor, what I love to do, to put more time into, because i got too much fear about how I'm going to put food on my plate. Because if I'm honest, I don't trust God that God will come through for me. And so I externally would say I trust God. But internally, and what my actions show is, man, I don't really. Because I know what God's calling me to. And what I need y'all to do as the people of Faust Chapel pray that I'll be obedient to what God's called me to. You don't want a pastor that's disobedient. I promise that. I'm right on the verge to hearing that God has said, you need to walk away from men of valor. I have not heard that yet. I promise that I hear that. But I, what I'll need from you as your pastor is a lot of prayer. That He'll give me the courage and give me the trust to believe that He'll care for me far more than I know how to care for myself. 
Like, I think caring for myself, I mean, I better work and I better work hard. I was just having this conversation with Jenny at, at dinner the other night. Like, I say yes to a lot of things because I'm terrified that when the next phone call for the next appointment comes, I won't have any more phone calls. Well, you know what that means? That, that means no more money. I don't get a paycheck just as I go show up to work. I'm dependent on other people coming into my office. So when someone doesn't come into my office, I don't get a paycheck. So I say yes to a lot of things I ought to probably say no to because I'm too fearful of when that phone call will stop coming, which really says I don't believe that God will provide for me. And so for me, this week, these last two weeks, reading this passage, I've been asking myself, where have I set my hope? In dollars? In cents? Or in the one who gives it all? I can read Psalm all day long where it says God owns a thousand cattle. And you know what else He owns? A thousand hills with a thousand cattle. That's saying God owns everything. Now, I'll say I believe that. But do my actions say I believe that? That's two different things. Where have I set my hope? And I would ask us, church, where have we set our hope to? And now Paul moves into this is how we are to make a good investment. You want to be a good investment investor? Do these four things. He tells us these four things are this. In verse 18. They, the rich, they, you and me, we are to do good. That's the first one. To be rich in good work. To be generous and to share. Four things. We are to do good. It says this in one of Paul's letters. It says this in Ephesians chapter 2. That God has prepared us for good work. Like God's already put the landscape for our good works. He just tells us to go do the good works He's already prepared for us. We don't have to go looking to do good works. They're out there. God has given us good works to do. Are we doing what God has called us to do in our good works and doing good at that? Meaning, are we doing it with all that we have to do good? To do it with excellence? Do we do all that we do with excellence? Do we do good work? Are we generous men and women? I'd even ask this question as a church. Are we generous with what God has given to us? And I know we can look at our budget and say we give how much away, Jonathan, 19%? Give 19%. That, that's very generous. What if God this next year called us to give 22% of our budget away? It became even more generous what He's given to us. And we scaled back on things that we like so that we can be more generous with what God's given to us so we can give back to the world. If we could operate on a much leaner budget if we wanted to, correct, Jonathan? You're the finance guy, I'm not. So what if we begin to cry out to God and say, God, what, what is it that you would call us to? Like, what if it's more than 19%? And we gave that money away to the world. We gave that money away to our community. Would that not be doing good with good work and being generous? Then the next one and the last one is this. That we be ready to share. That means we go above and beyond our generosity. So we're going to give all this stuff away, 
but be, be even more eager when people come here that we have even more to give away to them. Before we had no cap on how much we gave away to people because we were always ready to give it away. That is what it means to be wise investors. That we do everything with excellence. We do the good works that God has prepared for us. We, we give generously and we're always ready to give it away so that you want to know what happens when we do these four things. Paul promises this will happen to us. The promise comes in verse 19. Thus, you are storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. He's saying when you give it all away, you begin to hold on what really matters. True life. You know what true life is? It's not found on this planet. That true life is eternal life. It's what Jesus says. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. It's page 811 in your pew Bible. The Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this. Chapter 6, verse 19. Paul is borrowing from the greatest sermon ever preached when he says what he says in that last portion. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures where? In heaven where neither moth nor Rust destroys where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Verse 24. No one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will devote himself to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve what? Both God and money. What Paul is saying to us is what Jesus said to his disciples on that hillside 2,000 years ago. Where are we storing up our treasures? Is it in a bank? Is it in investments? Is it in stuff? Or are we storing up all that we have in, in and for the kingdom of God? You've heard it said before. Show me a man's wallet. Show me a man's bank account. I'll show you a man's heart. Are we generous? Are we giving stuff away? Where is our treasure being stored, church? You want to be a wise investor? Invest in heavenly things. That's the greatest investment. Like as smart as the most wisest investors here on the planet are, there's no guarantee. Like the stock market has no guarantee. Like I, I know if you go right now and you look up on uh, as an investor, you'd want to invest in. Amazon or Google or Apple. Those right now are wise investments. Well, that could crash tomorrow. And you'd be penniless. But what God's Word says, you store up treasures in heaven, that can never be taken from us. Where's our investment? Are we wise investors? And now he's going to tell us our greatest investments. 
and what we must do with our greatest investment. He tells young Timothy in verse 20, Oh, Timothy. It's like this plea to Timothy. You can just kind of hear in Paul's voice to Timothy. Oh, Timothy, please, 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 is what he's saying. This is like this angst about Paul to Timothy. He's pleading with him. He says, oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. What he's saying is, it's a play on words. There's been an investment made on you. Guard that investment that's been given to you. Well, what's the investment that Paul is urging Timothy to guard? The word guard there has this idea of a safety deposit box. And when you go to the bank and you put stuff in the safety deposit box, you're guaranteed when you come back in a week, a year, ten years, what's going to be in the safety deposit box? Whatever you put in it. Well, they didn't have safety deposit boxes back then. What they had is trusted people they would go give their most trusted stuff to. And they would guard that stuff. What Paul is saying is a play on words. There's been an investment that you've been given. You know who the investor is? God. God gave you an investment, Timothy. Now guard it with all that you have. Well, you've got to ask the question, what's the investment? It's one word. He's talking about his salvation. Guard your salvation. It's what Paul has been saying throughout this letter to Timothy. He says it this way. He walks us through the Gospel in chapters 1, 2, and 3. The Gospel is simply this, that young Timothy is to guard. He must guard the understanding of the Incarnation. He tells us that in verse 15 of chapter 1. The Incarnation, it says this, that God became flesh and dwelt among us. Do we believe that to be true? We've got to guard that as people of God. Like We hold the value of the Incarnation that God Himself became man. That sets us apart from every other religion. Do we believe in the Incarnation? We must guard that. We must fight against the world that says that is not true. The second thing He says you must guard and fight for is found in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 and 6. The next three come out of that same verse. We must guard the atonement. The atonement is simply this. That God did something for you that you could not do for yourself. That He paid the payment of your sin. That's the atonement. That there was sacrificial, righteous blood shed for you and I so that we could come into the presence of God. We must guard that. The second thing is this. In the atonement comes redemption. It's through the atonement that we've been redeemed by Christ to even get into the presence of God. The fourth one is this. Do we guard the resurrection? Thank God. Again, it baffles me. I've said it from this pulpit before. I guess it's a music stand today. How can people go to Israel? What are they expecting when they go to Jesus' tomb? Like, it's going to be empty. Just look in your closet. It looks the same. And no bones in there. There's no uh, cloth in there. It's just empty. That's what sets us apart, is an empty tomb. You go to Mecca, they they walk around in a circle, the bones uh, of their prophet. We don't have bones of a prophet. We have a risen 
Savior that sits on the throne that rules supreme today. We've got to guard that. And then he tells us in verse 16 of chapter 3, now we are to proclaim that. Every one of us ought to be proclaimers of the gospel, not just Timothy, not just the pastor. You and I, as believers, are to proclaim the truth of God. And the last one is this. We must protect and guard our glorification in the return of Christ Jesus. He is returning. You do know that, correct? We must guard that and let people know that to be true. Let's turn to Romans chapter 6. So we're reminded of the deposit that we have. That's page 943 in the Pew Bible. You know this verse very well. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. says this, but for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. You see, you've been given a gift by God. You did not purchase it. You did not earn it. You do not deserve it. You can't even keep it. God is saying, I've given you a trusted gift. Will you guard it? Here's how I know that plays out. At least in my marriage. Jenny would say to you, outside of our kids, the most trusted possession she owns, is her wedding ring. Anyone else have felt that way? Like, man, that, that thing is... Like, Jenny gets frantic if she loses it. Like, scours... And, and here's what's so important about that wedding ring. It comes from my grandmother. And my grandparents on my dad's side of the family are the only grandparents that, in our line, in my life, that remain married till the day they die. So it's a very treasured possession. That little diamond ring pales in comparison to the gift of salvation that God has handed to me. Like He handed it to me when I was still a wretched sinner. Like think about that for a moment. You're going to give your most valued possession to a criminal to watch over? But that's what He did. And the moment He gave it to us, He redeemed us, He called us, and He set us free. It's by the receiving of the gift that changed everything about us. Even though He saw us as criminals, He knew that giving us this great gift of salvation, that it would change everything about us, so He graciously gave it to us as a free gift. And now He's asking us to treasure and to guard the gift that He's given to us. Are we guarding that great deposit? Because there is a great investor that invested in you. And what did he invest? His greatest gift. His son. Now, I love a lot of y'all, but I ain't going to ask invest my Peter in any of you guys. That's what Jesus does. That's who Jesus is. The great gift. 
I'll end with this as a way of application. John MacArthur, in his commentary on this passage, says this. There's seven helpful ways. I believe there's more, but he says seven helpful ways for us to guard the deposit which Christ is in our lives, which God has given to us. The first one comes out of John 5, 24. Do we believe the Word? Do you believe first that this is a treasured gift that He's given to you? The second one is this. Not only are we to believe it, but we are to honor it. Do we honor God's gift of salvation? Are we to believe it? We're to honor it. Psalms 119.96 says this. We are to love God's Word. Do we love God's Word? Or is this another book on the shelf? Is this another book on our coffee table? Or do we love it? The next one is this. John 8, 31 says this. Not only are we to believe it, not only do we honor it, not only do we to love it, but we must obey it. We obey God's Word. That's the one way that we guard what's been deposited to us. We obey it. 2 Timothy 4.2 says this. We are also to proclaim the Word of God. Jude 3 says this. We are to defend the Word of God. And the last one is this. We must continue to study the Word of God. You want to guard the deposit that's been so entrusted to us. Let's believe the Word of God, honor the Word of God, love the Word of God, obey the Word of God, proclaim the Word of God, defend the Word of God, and study the Word of God. And then it can be said the way it was said to Timothy. The way he starts the book or the letters, the way he ends the book. Grace be with you. Let me pray. God, I pray that would be true for us. We would be good investors with what you've been given to us because you are the great.